Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway and Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is young Steinway artist Amir Siraj. He is completing a dual degree at Harvard University in the New England Conservatory of Music in astrophysics and piano performance. His research has explored the moon, comets, asteroids, detecting small black holes, and of course, Beethoven. Amir, you have just finished a project with our nation's national parks, and I'm interested in hearing what that was, how it came about. I've always um, really thought about music in in two different ways. One is, of course, the incredible personal joy and gratification we get from, you know, listening to music, you know, interpreting it, really, you know, grappling with a composer's ideas and, you know, ultimately realizing an interpretation in the way we choose to perform something. And that has sort of been a constant in my life that, you know, I'm very grateful for. But but a whole different aspect of music, I think, is its ability to touch people who, I guess, in situations where music might not necessarily be the obvious choice and where music might be underutilized. So... The way I've thought about that, and and this has been a whole wholly separate source of gratification, is is that you know sharing music, um, you know going into children's museums and you know working with kids uh, with a, like an instrument petting zoo, or going to uh, senior homes and and having really sort of wonderful conversations about these people's lives and and how they connect to the music that uh, you share with them or that some, in some cases they share with you. And so I've certainly got a great deal of um, joy of bringing music sort of outside of the concert hall, so to speak. And a part of that is, or, you know, one of the things I've realized is that music's sort of ability to move people can also be used to highlight important causes, um, not just with sort of interpersonal connections, but on sort of a larger scale. And the first taste I had of that was doing a project uh, to fight hunger in my local community. And it, it was this um, concert at uh, the New England Conservatory, and it was in partnership with Music for Food, which is a wonderful organization. And it certainly shocked me, you know, how successful an event like that was. And I think the, the reason why is because music speaks to people in a different way than, you know, words can or mm-hmm. reading a pamphlet can. And you can have all the information in the world and you can understand everything intellectually and academically. But sometimes it's just sitting down and reflecting and being moved and, and sort of being, in, you know, part of something bigger than yourself and experiencing it. And, and it's, it's very personal, you know, at the end of the day, because it, it moves us in different ways. And so coming to the national parks, I've always been in love with nature, parks specifically, but nature in general, always since I was a little kid. And for the um, centennial of the national parks, which was in 2016, I wrote a poem about the founding of the 
parks and did some arts advocacy to sort of highlight the centennial there. But ever ever since the centennial, I've been thinking about the parks more and more because they're facing more and more threats, you know, from a policy perspective, from a climate change perspective. And I never really felt that the response, the public response and the, I guess, social media response and just the awareness, you know, in my conversations with friends was ever sort of commensurate to the gravity of the problem. That's well said. And it's been true since uh, before Al Gore. (laughs) Exactly. It's a it's a struggle that continues. You were speaking about music and perhaps you were speaking to its faculties as a universal language. Does music enable and perhaps ease discussing difficult truths such as climate change? I'm certainly inclined to to think so. And I think that's a great point because music is, as you said, it's it's universal and it really connects people from all walks of life. And that's not something that can, you know, be genuinely said about a lot of things. And as a result, it is one of the things in the human experience that, that grounds us in in something that is shared. I certainly think, and there have been, you know, great examples of this, you know, there's there's been some great sort of musical leaders who who use music in contexts uh, where there are often difficult conversations or, or disagreements coming to mind are three musicians. Uh, Baron Boehm, of course, you know, has, has done really wonderful work um, in the Middle East. Yo-Yo Ma um, is, you know, arguably one of the best musical communicators. His recent Bach project is just one small example of that, Silk Road. Long, long as well, you know, with the huge programs in music education, etc. I guess the successes of these efforts, more than, you know, speaking to any of the individual artists, but when you look at it as a whole, I think the arts and music is something that if you start investing in it, and if, if people start experiencing and both experiencing and making music, it sort of highlights a, a shared humanity in a different way from other things. And it it sounds cliche, but it, it connects us. Just even playing chamber music or, you know, singing with someone can really go a long way. So, you know, I, I certainly think that music is a big piece of the puzzle going forward, whether it's in arts education or in conflict resolution, all of that. Was it Lang Lang and Yo-Yo Ma who inspired you to take an active role in your community? Absolutely. Yeah. It was really sort of the example set by the musicians that I look up to. And yeah, I'm, I couldn't be happier because at first it, it might seem, it seemed to me that, okay, this is kind of, you know, something that is different from my normal music making and learning and that sort of process and playing, you know, concerts or concertos. This is more like community service and engagement. Seeing the effect that music can have on people makes the personal engagement with music all the more meaningful. Tell me about what degree you're presently getting at Harvard in astrophysics. That's about all I know is enough to even ask that question. I think I I mentioned to you before the call that um, I took physics for a hot minute in high school and it it really broke me. So I'm already kind of in awe of anyone who can deign to, to study that further. Well, thank you. Um, I'm studying um, astrophysics at Harvard, and I'm concurrently uh, working towards my bachelor's and my master's in astrophysics. And I'm about to start my final year of studies 
So it, it's interesting because I've always had a deep interest in, in science in addition to music. And one of the things I loved about science is not necessarily the minute details and, you know, working through the equations, but more that it, it's like music, it's, it's very powerful. And it's really a tool that helps you ask really deep questions about the world around you and start to appreciate things that, you know, we might have overlooked. And I, I find that very sort of similar to, um, to my process with music, because often I will spend some time with a piece and then suddenly, after working on it for a while, find some hidden voice or harmony and which sort of like shapes and changes the way I thought about that particular piece. And so science uh, and astrophysics, why astrophysics in particular, to me, it's one of the most creative fields of science. And it's, it's at a time where there's just so much unknown and so much being discovered every day. And um, I've been very lucky to have like a very creative and curious and humble uh, mentor, um, Avi Loeb. He was chair of the astronomy department for the past uh, decade. He's really a free thinker and reminds me in, in a lot of ways of uh, a lot of great musicians. Um, and so it's been really freeing to work on, on new theories. I saw you too had recently done some lunar research. Is that correct? Yeah. And my <laughs> exhaustive Googling that I did before the call. Yeah, the moon is interesting because the moon is one of the best keepers of history. And what I mean by that is uh, the Earth, we have an atmosphere and that's nice for us, for humans. It means that we can breathe. Um, <laughs> but in terms of understanding what happened over the past 4 billion years, it's a little bit disappointing because, you know, the atmosphere blocks a lot of things, you know, a lot of, you know, small objects and, you know, radiation gets stopped in the atmosphere. It's very different on the moon. Uh, on the moon, anything coming towards the moon will hit the moon. It will affect the moon. It changes the moon. And so um, there's a great deal we can learn from studying the moon about the past, you know, 4 billion years, which is really exciting. You know, what I've been working on recently, there were a couple of mysteries about the solar system that were bugging me for a while. There was not quite the right number of objects in the outer solar system. These are like comets that may have sort of provided water to Earth. These are objects that are really far away from the Earth. And so they're hard to study. But of the ones we have studied, the numbers weren't quite lining up with models and then there's the issue of Planet Nine. There's this planet that might be out there, and there's pretty good evidence that it exists, but there's also issues with how it could have formed. And what I realized is that if there was a second sun early on, uh, if the sun was born with a companion star, then a lot of these issues can actually be resolved, hmm. which was extremely sort of striking and, and moving. Um, it was a moving sort of realization once, obviously, uh, once I did the calculations and talked it through with my advisor and, and worked through the numbers, but just like, it sort of filled me with, with a sense of, of wonder that's, I think, very similar to, to music, um, and just imagining that in the early days, there might have been a second sun, like how, how inspiring is that? And mm -hmm. so, so I'm excited that that's, that's going to be published soon. And we'll see what the sort of community uh, thinks, but um, that, that's sort of one example of what I've been working on recently in science. I'm just thinking of Luke Skywalker staring into the, uh, the dual sunset. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> in episode four.
<laughs> yes. Is your sock drawer super organized? Surprisingly not, no. <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm just trying to figure out, you know, how this, like, anxiety over missing comets, does it extend to the quotidian? Um, no, absolutely not. And my family makes fun of me for it. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, how can you, you know, how can you be doing science and space and... And not even, you know, something stupid. You didn't eat lunch today or something. (laughs) Ideally, dream situation. Where does this intersection of music and astrophysics ultimately lead you? Yeah, I think that's a a great question. I sort of think about it a, a lot. And it often comes down to the idea and sort of my belief that everyone is really multi-dimensional and everyone sort of has lots of different interests. And I think often, you know, our society tends to like it when people minimize certain interests and and try to fit into a particular niche. And that's not to say that specialization isn't good. I think it's fantastic. And specialization can lead to some really wonderful, really wonderful outcomes in art and science and writing and in anything. But I think, you know, exclusive specialization can be dangerous sometimes. There's a certain amount of, uh, you know, perspective that is gained from um, having sort of deep experiences in different, even if closely related fields. Personally, you know, I've certainly got the question a lot because, you know, in addition to my studies at Harvard, I'm also working towards my uh, master's um, at New England Conservatory in Harvard NEC program. And I've certainly got the question a lot, what are you doing? Like, what, what are you going to do? Why are you, like, you're wasting your time with one of these and that sort of line of reasoning. They're expecting one to eventually win out, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I guess I, I don't necessarily view it that way um, because I think my science would suffer a lot without music and and likewise with my music wouldn't be the same without science. And so they, they sort of support each other and sort of connect to just being curious about, you know, the world and and the world being, you know, a musical world or space, it doesn't really matter to me. So I hope in the future that I'm you know, that I continue to both make music and do science and, and do both both of these things in ways that something that's really important to me is kind of as I touched on with bringing music into the community is sharing it um, with the public and also just making sure that in terms of science communication or music communication that that we're doing the best with what we have and and that I'm sort of contributing the most where I can and so with both you know my future in science and in music I I hope to place a sort of special emphasis like on the music side as I said look up to Lang Lang Yo Ma and I think the need for music advocacy is going to be even greater in the future and then on the science side I think we're at a, we're conducting this interview from our homes, right? And so, yeah, uh, that should tell us something. Yeah, that, <laughs> I I personally think that tells us that uh, we need to take science more seriously, and and maybe it's maybe this is a you know, maybe a silver lining of uh, this pandemic is that um, you know we will start. Um, investing in in innovative science and because there are many sort types of disasters other than pandemics, uh, some of them space related, you know, solar flare or asteroid impact. 
there's many things that have a high likelihood of not happening <laughs> until they do <laughs> until they do <laughs> exactly and then once they do it's uh it's usually pretty ugly so i think that um you know i, I certainly want to put my skills i mean they're not the most practical with astrophysics, but there's a few practical applications and I certainly <laughs> want to help put those to use in, in the ways that I can. What can piano playing teach us about our place in the universe? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. I think one of the things that piano tells us is uh, that that took hundreds of years to realize in astronomy <laughs> is that we are not uh, the center of the universe. And I think it tells us that in a few ways. One is, so I I think the the whole sort of Copernican idea uh, that we are not the center of the universe um, and the the Copernican principle more generally, which is there's no reason that we are special. Uh, We're not at a special place in the solar system. You know, the solar system doesn't, surround us and then later we discovered that we're not even in a special place in the galaxy we're in we're in the suburbs of the milky way and that we're not we're also not in a special place in the universe like the universe is not doesn't really care right <laughs> uh, where we are and um and every direction we look seems to be uh the same and um and the copernican principle has proved to be very useful in sort of shaping science over the past several hundred years what I think it comes down to, if you had to distill it down and you're like, okay, well, it's, it's kind of about simplicity. It's kind of about not being special. I think if you sort of distill the Copernican principle into one thing, it would just be humility mm. because someone with a big ego might say, you know, I'm the center of the world. I'm the center of the universe. And, and someone who's a little bit, who applies a little bit of humility uh, might think a little bit more carefully and that might not be the initial assumption and and humility has gone a long way in astronomy it so far has been correct and we'll see what happens next with the search for life in the universe but i think that that is another area where humility will reign supreme and we will find that we are not the only kids on the block is my personal prediction but uh, and we can come back to that but um, but in terms of music i think it's it's much more clear um, in music uh, in a number of ways. One thing is just the breadth of the piano repertoire, which you start realizing, I mean, it's something that you you kind of gain an evolving understanding of as you progress as a musician, but you can kind of get a sense pretty early on that the vastness of the you know musical universe that has already been created, not even thinking about compositions in the future, is just so unimaginable. And it's really just like a vast accomplishment of humanity that we have such a incredibly rich repertoire, a repertoire so rich that some people have thought throughout history that there's no more music to be composed or no more good music to be composed. And I think that alone, that's something that astronomers have been rediscovering time after time and keep on being surprised by. But if you're a musician, you say, well, obviously the universe or the musical universe in this case is, is so big. And, and musicians, rather than um, being driven by ego walking through this musical universe, to be a good musician and to, to bring something 
interesting to the table, you, you have to kind of take a back seat and listen and try to understand what the composer is trying to tell you and what the notes are trying to tell you. And, and often what I've found in talking to my colleagues, it's like the best approach is to come with an open mind, sort of be a blank canvas. And the more biases you come in with, the more difficult it, it can be, especially with a, with a new piece of music. And so I think in, in that way, it sort of teaches you a combination of, yes, humility, but also curiosity. And I, and I think that's the other component. Humility alone or curiosity alone are not necessarily good enough, but the two together, I think, make for great musicians. And if you're playing a concerto with the orchestra, um, you certainly need to have both. You can't, be, you can't pretend that you're the center of everything and refuse to <laughs> work with the conductor or miss connections with the orchestra yeah that orchestral universe has to be in harmony exactly but also if you're just taking a back seat and you're not really having i guess the curiosity or eagerness or sense of exploration in which you're w- willing to put yourself out there it can also make for a boring performance so there's a there's a balance that needs to be struck of course and and that has taught me a lot of important lessons. And those skills, I guess, transfer very directly to science. You spoke about the vastness of the repertoire. Let's talk a bit. Right now, you're working on some music by William Bolcom, who is one of the great living American composers, known perhaps to music circles, but certainly, in my humble opinion, not as well as he ought to be. What are you working on by him? And, and what have you discovered about his music? Yeah, William Balcom is interesting. You know, I, I'd never really um, played his music. I, I'd heard bits and pieces here and there, and they would always, you know, intrigue me. And actually, right now, I'm only just starting, um, as of this week, uh, to delve into the uh, the twelve etudes, the the twelve new etudes for for piano, which, of course, William Balcom won the the Pulitzer Prize for. So far, it's been a really eye opening experience, as you said. I'm already surprised why, you know, more people don't know, outside of music circles, don't know about his music because it's really special. Someone who is perhaps more known as Mozart, <laughs> and you're working on some Mozart as well. So what's it like to take up the Mozart flag? Mozart is difficult. I always try to be working on some work of Mozart. I mean, usually a concerto or a sonata, because non-musicians, when you say Mozart is difficult, a lot of them you know, kind of react with surprise and they're like, come on, like kids play Mozart, they no, don't sound that hard. But amongst pianists, Mozart is notoriously difficult, I think because of its simplicity and because of its um, bare beauty and borderline perfection. And the, the vocal quality of, of Mozart is something that I'm always trying to improve upon because his melodies and are so tied to the human voice, um, even things that don't seem vocal upon first glance. Fundamentally, if you if you think about them enough, and if you sing if you sing through them, there's some sort of connection. So it, it's a great challenge, but it's it's a really fun one. I'm working on the C minor concerto right now. It's just very it's very gratifying, but also very frustrating because once I think I've gotten part of it down and. Uh, I play through it, and I'm like, wow, that doesn't sound at all what I want it to sound like. <laughs> when I interviewed Mitsuko Ochida, she shared your feelings about Mozart. Yeah. I personally think that he's in that category of 
music that is hard but sounds easy. Mm-hmm. And that's the toughest, right? There's only four kinds if you do it that way. Easy music that sounds easy. Hard music that sounds hard. Easy music that sounds hard. That's always fun. Yes. And then the dreaded hard music that sounds easy. In a way, you're really up against it. Because if you don't make it sound easy, people will say, oh, he's really screwing this up. Yes. (laughs) But there is that transparency that we hear as listeners from Mozart is actually quite difficult to pull off. Absolutely. And I think that that's what makes it when you hear someone like Uchida or Pariah play Mozart, Mm -hmm. then I mean... It just kind of blows you away, right? It's just the, as you said, you know, it's very frustrating to work on, but something about when one has sort of mastered that simplicity and is delivering something so convincing and beautiful, like that's honestly, you know, some of the most powerful performances I've heard of were, you know, Uchida and Pariah playing Mozart. And it's just, it just, you know, knocks you away, the simplicity. You spoke to the pandemic's implications for science. I wonder if your relationship to the piano has changed during the quarantine. That's a really important thing to bring up because I think obviously musicians have, this whole musical world has been overturned in this pandemic. Um, And personally, I think one of the sort of many aspects of it is that because there's such little human contact, I really can't imagine not being a musician and not having this sort of instrument to, I mean, of course we can talk over Zoom or FaceTime, but you know, a lot of the, Mm. a lot of human connection, because it is by nature more casual and informal um, is sort of lacking. And just being able to talk to an instrument and to I don't know. It's just wonderful to, it's a great privilege to be able to um, interface with these characters in music. And so I certainly have found myself, I guess, I think it's a good thing that I've been asking the music more questions and paying, you know, more attention to, I guess, paying more attention to idiosyncrasies in the music in, you know, Brahms, for example, these small Things that, and, and this is something that goes a long way when working on Beethoven as well. There, there's often these small compositional, seemingly small compositional choices, an offbeat here or accidental there, that when you really dig down and you actually think about what the other possibilities would have been, that's when you start appreciating the beauty. And I think that's the case for a lot of great composers. It's like, yes, when you listen to their composition, it sounds wonderful, but Really, when you start trying to put yourself in their shoes, given the example of Beethoven, you know, Diabelli variations, for instance, taking something as simple as the Diabelli theme, or maybe Brendel has the whole theory of that Beethoven is just making fun of Diabelli. I don't think that's exactly fair. That's a lot of effort for a joke, you know? Exactly. Yeah, I think I think there's certainly a good deal of humor, but it's one of those examples when you think about like the other possibilities, even on like a very micro level, then you just start, I mean, I'm not a composer, but I can, you know, start to imagine like, okay, this is really something special. And this actually, this, you know, offbeat is like really changes the framing for, you know, this whole variation and the way it talks to these other ones. And so that's been a, that's been a really, you know, really gratifying thing to be paying attention to. 
I'm glad that you used Beethoven as an example, because if you look at his drafts and his scribblings, <laughs> his sometimes very angry scribblings, you see the amount of material that he threw away, jettisoned, left on the cutting room floor. And I know some composers who I won't name here, who <laughs> doesn't seem they throw anything away at all, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Everything's a brilliant idea. Yeah. And I think Beethoven, who was a man of brilliant ideas, only took his most brilliant ideas. So I think you're right in that that accidental isn't always just an accidental considering how much he worked those motives and that material. That is spot on. His process was absolutely painstaking. Exactly. Like I've often found myself when I work on a Beethoven, you know, work looking at the manuscripts and it's just mind boggling. It's like if you could... You can imagine it. You can look at a piece and then imagine like the drafts and you can kind of like shape a prediction. And then you actually look at the drafts and you're like, wow, he just tried all of these different things and he's crossed out this. And with Beethoven, it's like a lot of these aren't minor changes. Yeah, The pieces would have sounded completely different if he had chosen a different draft. Like he made huge changes and maybe this is... One of the reasons why he was angry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That must take, especially like if you're a great composer and you're very well respected, it's like you don't have to try out all of these possibilities. But I think Beethoven was just such a force of nature that, you know, he, wow, what what an explorer he was. Indeed. Could we maybe picture him? Could we transplant him to the physics lab looking for evidence of a second sun? Do you think he would have been a mad scientist? Oh, my God. Beethoven would have blown every other scientist out of the water. That's what <laughs> I can tell you. Yes. <laughs> You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. Our intro and outro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, Editor-in-Chief at ListenMusicCulture.com. Question for the podcast? Message me on Facebook at Soundboard or hit me on the gram at Soundboard Podcast. Subscribe to Soundboard on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, or wherever you pod your casts. Thank you for listening. <laughs>